I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We've been teaching a series on authority for a number of weeks. And um, this was a series that the Lord really put on my heart uh, some months ago to teach. And then uh, when um, Terry Mize was here in January, there were some things that the Lord really quickened in my heart about this subject even more. And as a result, I'm... uh, Well, the Lord seems to be revealing some things to me on the subject of authority that I've never really seen, or at least things that perhaps that I've seen now, I'm seeing them in a new way. Now, it's a little early to say, so I I don't want to be real definite about it, but it seems that I might be growing. (laughs) And um, if so, that's real good news to me. Luke chapter 10 tells us the story of when Jesus sent the 70 out. And he commanded them to do certain things. He told them to preach the gospel. He told them to heal the sick. And then they came back and they reported that the name of Jesus went further than he had even specified. They came back and they said in verse, uh, I think it's verse 17, the 70 returned again with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, if you go back and look at the instruction Jesus gave them, they didn't say one word about casting out devils or taking authority over the devil in any way whatsoever other than heal the sick. So they find out, obviously through use, through experience, they find out that the name of Jesus went even further than they might have expected it to or that Jesus specifically said that it would on their missionary trip or journey, endeavor. Jesus answers and says in verse 18, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, folks, please understand he's not saying, yeah, when you use my name, Satan fell. He's talking about something that happened before the creation of the earth or at least the creation of man. He's talking about Satan being cast out of heaven when he rebelled against God with a third of the angels and God defeated him in the moment of of time. We have this idea that there was this great war in heaven and that, that, you know, God just barely held out and and thank God he had more angels than the devil did or else he'd have been in trouble. But folks, the Bible tells us how God defeated Jesus. Jesus said, I watched Satan fall from heaven as lightning. Well, you've seen lightning flash before. It's not a slow float down to the earth. It's an immediate fall. It's a crash to the earth and shakes everything and everybody around it. That's what he's saying about the devil. He's saying the name of Jesus works. You have authority because Satan is already defeated. Now, folks, please realize that the time Jesus is saying that, just as as it is true today, Satan is the God of this world. Yet Jesus is telling us, He's a defeated foe. He's an occupier, an illegal occupier of God's territory. Then he goes further and tells us about what belongs to us because these things are true. Verse 19, behold, I give unto you power. The word power, notice there are two times the word power is used in this verse, two different Greek words. First word is authority, delegated power. The second word is ability, what we would interpret as strength or a proper use of the word power. So he says, Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now, what are the serpents and scorpions? Those are types of the devil's power. And then he identifies that it's not only over serpents and scorpions, but over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, I believe that's the most important part of the verse. And nothing shall, because of this authority we have, nothing shall by any means hurt you. 
Now he goes further. We used to stop reading there, but notice in verse 20, I'll just make mention of it and then we'll come back and refer to it later without having to turn. Jesus goes on to say, notwithstanding in this rejoice not. He's saying, now these things are true, but don't get happy because the devil is subject to you. Now, folks, I got to tell you, that should make most of us happy. But he's trying to make a point to us. He said, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather, here's where we ought to put our rejoicing, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, folks, you know what the issue is, the, the real conflict or controversy or whatever word you want to attach to it in the body of Christ is concerning the, the subject of authority. Man is naturally indisposed to believe that he has been given something by God. Religion fosters that. Whatever your natural inclination is to think, well, okay, that must have been just for the disciples or that just must have been for somebody else because, hey, I know me. Religion will add to that and is coming up with all kinds of excuses why this does not mean you. If it did not mean you, then why did God give us a record of it? If this was just for the 70 or just for the disciples or just those that were here on the earth, why would the Holy Ghost inspire these things to be written? It would seem to me that if it doesn't belong to anybody except for them and them is already gone. I know that's not good English, but you get the point. Then it would seem to me that the Holy Ghost is just rubbing our nose in something that we can't have. Would you do that to your kids? I wouldn't consider it to be a good parent to do that with their children. Yeah, well, I used to have other kids and boy, I was good to them. But you guys... Oh, that's been done away with. No, that can't be what's going on. We know further from Genesis chapter 1 when it tells us the story of creation. God said, let us, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are talking about the creation and God's plan. And it says, let us make man in our own image. And let them have dominion over the works of our hands, over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and so forth. We see very clearly then that it was God's plan before creation and at the time of creation for man to have dominion. In other words, it was God's plan then that man would accomplish his will by exercising his authority. Now, folks, please realize at the time that God creates the earth, Satan is present. When God commands Adam and Eve to dress and keep the garden, it literally means garden protected. If there's no enemy, there's nothing to garden protected against. That tells us, therefore, that it's absolutely possible. You and I, or at least they were, depending on whether you believe this still belongs to us or it was just them, it tells us that Adam and Eve were absolutely capable. They had everything that they needed to exercise God's will here on the earth in the presence of Satan. See, most people think that the will of God can be accomplished when Satan is gone. That's not so. God put man on the earth to have dominion in the presence of Satan. And please understand this. It was God's original intent for man to exercise God's authority, meaning the authority that God delivered unto mankind as an example of God's victory over Satan. In other words, God's not rubbing man's nose into what somebody else used to have. God's rubbing the devil's nose in what he's given man. 
Now, some people will say, well, that, yeah, that was, but that's different now. I mean, you know, it's, it, it worked that way in, in times past, but that's not the way it is now. The problem with that is that we see, number one, that the Bible says, God says of himself, I'm God, I change not. Secondly, we see evidence, scriptural evidence, of how God restored authority to man in every way that he could to every measure that he was able. For example, Adam and Eve uh, fell in the Garden of Eden. They disobeyed God, and so they lost their authority. That's the point where Satan became the God of this world. We know that to be true in Luke chapter 4. When Jesus is being tempted of the devil, Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and he says, I'll fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all this, because this has been delivered unto me. I'll give you all this authority, the authority of the nations of the earth, the authority of the, earth, the whole world. I'll give you that authority because it's been delivered unto me. Well, when was it delivered? If Jesus knew that to be a lie, some people will say, well, the devil's just a liar, and so that wasn't, that wasn't a real temptation. Then why did Jesus go along with it? Why didn't Jesus say, no, you don't. You don't have that. That never was delivered unto you. You know you're lying. Instead, Jesus says, it is written, thou shalt worship him and uh, God, and him only shalt thou serve. In other words, he answered the temptation with the word. If the truth was that Satan was lying, then why would Jesus have answered the way that he did? The truth would have been for him to call Satan a liar, but he didn't, which tells me that Satan wasn't lying about it. We know that the Holy Spirit tells us uh, through the Apostle Paul that Satan is the God of this world. He writes in 1 Corinthians 4 that Satan is the God of this world who blinds the minds of men here on the earth. Well, when was, Satan, when was Satan made? When did he become the God of this world? He sure wasn't the God of this world when God created it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. When did he become the God of this world? When Adam and Eve gave their authority unto him. That's when the authority of the world was delivered unto him. That's what they lost when they were separated from God. So what did God do? God worked from that point forward to accomplish his purpose in mankind to restore him to authority. We see that he begins to make covenants with people. He makes a covenant with Abraham. The curse is upon the earth. The, the curse of, of uh, the earth bringing forth thorns and thistles. It will only produce through thorns and thistles and so forth. Now, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Now, we don't know exactly how all this worked, but we see that God made Abraham rich. We see that he blessed him with flocks and herds and silver and cattle and gold and all different kinds of things. He increased him in a miraculous way, supernatural, supernatural way, certainly. But we don't really see Abraham exercising authority, except when we get to one example, it says that Abimelech, who was a king of a, had a, a certain kingdom at that period of time, and he made an alliance with Abraham. And it tells us that, Abra, that uh, Abimelech, excuse me, that Abimelech's family, his wives uh, weren't able to have children and so forth. And it says that Abraham prayed for Abimelech and God healed them. So we see even in the earliest stages when God begins to make a covenant, when God begins to give his instruction to mankind once again through Abraham as the, as the beginning, we see that he begins to exercise authority, supernatural authority, that man could not have in and of himself. Abraham has a child, Isaac. Isaac operates in supernatural authority. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 26 that there was a famine in the land and Isaac sowed in the land of famine. God told him, don't go to Egypt. Don't go where it looks better. Stay here. I've had God tell me that sometimes. How about you? 
Don't go where it looks better. Don't do what everybody else is doing because it looks better and it looks like that's going to work. You put the word to work right where you are. It said Isaac sowed in that land of famine and he reaped a hundredfold. Think about what that means. That means his is the only farm that's producing anything. Everybody's driving down the road in their tractors and it's a dust bowl everywhere except Isaac's farm. They recognized that God was with him because of the authority that he exercised in obedience to God's word. Jacob exercises. Jacob is one of Isaac's two sons. Jacob exercises authority. You remember the story about how he steals his brother's birthright. His brother's only interested in what works for him today. He's impulsive. He sells his birthright, sells the blessing of God to his brother for a pot of stew. And his brother, once he realizes what's being done, and once his brother steals the the blessing by deceiving his father, then he's got to run. He's got to get out of there so his brother doesn't kill him. So he winds up working for his his, uh, uncle. And his uncle is just as big a deceiver as he is. He steals from Jacob just like Jacob stole from his brother. But even in the midst of that, not because Jacob deserved it, not because he had the character or the type of person that would deserve something like this, God said, because of the blessing that I made to your grandfather who obeyed me, he gives him a supernatural way for him to become stronger and bigger and, and, and more prosperous than even his uncle was. You remember how he did it. He said, take, the, take uh, sticks and strip the bark off. And he says, put that in front of the cattle when it's time, when it's breeding time. Now, folks, what does ring, what is, uh, was striped sticks have to do with cattle breeding? If it had anything in the world to do with cattle breeding, don't you know cattle ranchers all over the world would be having stick farms? It had nothing to do with anything. What it had to do was obedience to God's word. Folks, God's word sometimes doesn't make sense in how it will produce the results that the Word says it will produce. But obedience always brings results. Fast forward to Moses. We don't have too much information about the people between Abraham and Moses, or Isaac and Moses. We talk about Joseph. We can talk about some of those guys. But Moses comes on the scene and he's delivered the Word of God. Turn with me over to Exodus, I think it's chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. You remember the story of how the children of Israel have been in bondage. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Time comes where God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush and says, Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses says to Pharaoh, God appeared to me in a burning bush, told me to let my people go. Here's the proof. Threw down his stick, turned into a snake. Pharaoh looks around and says, what are you magicians going to do about this? They threw their sticks down, turned into snakes. Pharaoh says, see, this is no big deal, but Moses' snake swallows up their snakes. Nevertheless, Pharaoh says, I don't know your God. I'm not going to let him go. So then ten plagues take place for God to show his power. Now, every one of those ten plagues have something to do with one of the gods of Egypt. So what's, uh, what's lost sometimes in the King James translation is every one of those plagues is God showing I'm bigger than the God of the Nile River. I'm bigger than the locust god. I'm bigger than the god of hail or weather and so forth. Every one of those has something to do. They had frog gods. They had all kinds of stuff. They had cattle gods. They had everything that you could imagine. False idols built to just about everything in the world. And each one of the plagues has something to do with God showing, I'm greater than this one of your gods. Finally, the last plague 
is the death of the firstborn. Now, this was impossible in the Jewish... uh, Pharaoh's firstborn child dies as well. And this would be impossible as far as the Egyptian culture or belief was concerned because Pharaoh was God. You can't kill God's kid. So the death of the firstborn is proof just as much as the other plagues that this is the real God that's talking to you. Finally, Pharaoh relents. And he says, okay, get out of here. Take off. The Bible says God led forth the children of Israel. We don't know how many there were. Most estimates are anywhere from 2 to to, uh, 7 million people. Big crowd, no matter what number you choose. It says he led them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. So we see that obedience to God's word has provided physical and material well-being for the children of Israel under the old covenant. And they don't even have the law yet. Now, in Exodus chapter 14, it tells us about how they begin to take off. They're headed for the promised land, and Pharaoh changes his mind. Moses, who, by the way, was raised in Pharaoh's house as a military leader, leads them to a place where they've got mountains on one side, mountains on the other side, and the Red Sea behind them. The children of Israel begin to complain, saying, what kind of leader are you? We're trapped. And Moses makes some interesting statements. And I want you to see, beginning in verse 13, Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, Moses said unto the people, fear ye not. Folks, if you're going to see God do something, that's always step number one. Stop being afraid. Why? Because you can't obey if you're afraid. And obedience is always the key. You can't get God's word to work if you don't obey it. You can't obey it if you're in fear. So he said, fear ye not. uh, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will show unto you this day for the Egyptians whom you have seen today you shall see them again no more forever the Lord shall fight for you please notice what he says he says we're not going to have to fight here how did he know that why didn't he say go get your spears pick up a rock something no he said the Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace He shall hold your peace. Now, folks, this is exactly a picture of what happens today in the devil trying to steal what's yours. Here's a perfect picture because deliverance has already been accomplished for Israel. They've already left Egypt. They've already been delivered from slavery. They left with silver and gold, and there was not one people among them. They left healthy and prosperous. They're free. But now Pharaoh, who is a type of the devil, comes and tries to take away the deliverance that was already accomplished. Now, what was the final thing that happened that caused the deliverance of Israel from bondage of Egypt? The death of the firstborn. That's a type of Jesus. So deliverance has already been accomplished. They are already free. But here's the devil right on the heels of that, trying to take away the deliverance, the freedom that was gained. So what does he do? He comes in his most threatening manner. Now, Moses is smart enough to know the devil's not bigger than God. God will take care of us here. But the next thing that happens is so, so insignificant. Because Moses seems to be, from the previous verses we just read, Moses seems to be saying, don't worry, I'll talk to God. He'll bail us out of this. He'll take care of this. He'll even fight for us. The next verse, verse 15, is key. And the Lord said, up to this point, all we've seen is what Moses said. Now God's going to talk. And the Lord said unto Moses, wherefore criest thou unto me? Now that indicates to us something has happened that the Bible doesn't tell us about. 
that indicates to us that Moses now has gone from talking to the people to turn around talking to God and said, okay, Lord, you're going to have to do something about this. Kill these Egyptians. Smite them with the sword. Fight for us. Do something to keep them from stealing the freedom that we have gained. Now, folks, I want you to understand, Moses has exercised authority to get them free. How did he exercise that authority? Because God said, do this. Go tell Pharaoh this. Go tell Pharaoh that. Go tell Pharaoh this. Ten times, he's been back and forth to Pharaoh, obeying what God told him to do, and has brought them freedom. Now Moses seems to be saying, okay, Lord, you're going to have to come through one more time. Yet God says, what are you talking to me for? Now, folks, I've said this before, and forgive me for repeating myself, but this would be the perfect time, in my estimation, for, God, for Moses to be talking to God. Lord, the only reason we're here is because this is where you told us to come. I mean, thanks for delivering us, but the reason we're boxed in is because you told us to come this way. And you're saying, what are we talking to you about? Seriously? This is the perfect place to talk to him. But God is trying to get something across to us, and this is a type. This is an example of the way that it works for you too. How many of you are saved? You've already been delivered. You may be exactly where Moses and the children of Israel are in this situation. You may be boxed in on every side. And you may be doing exactly what Moses is doing, crying out, saying, oh, God, do something about this situation. The devil is coming in on us. He's trying to take our house. He's trying to take my job. He's trying to destroy us financially. He's trying to destroy my health, trying to destroy my family. All these terrible things that he's made threats about and that he's working diligently to accomplish. You've got to do something about this. Yet God says to Moses, what are you crying out to me for? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Forward? Uh, Lord, forward is in the water. Can't go through the mountain. Forward is in the water. You want us to go into the water? But, verse 16... He says, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. He didn't even say, you do it and I'll divide it. He said, you divide the water. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Folks, please understand, God is rebuking Moses for praying. Now, I know that sounds harsh. Because the church has got in mind in their thing that prayer is everything. We're always supposed to pray. Well, the Bible does say pray always. But that doesn't mean you're supposed to pray instead of doing what the Bible says to do. God is telling Moses, you exercise authority. You exercise authority. What is the one and only one answer or solution? To the devil robbing them of the freedom that God has already gained for them. Moses exercising authority. God seems to be saying, you handle this one on your own. Now, folks, you understand as well as I do that Moses does not have the power to, to part a cup of water, much less the Red Sea. There's no physical ability that he has. There's no natural ability he has. And to his thinking, there's no supernatural ability he has for it either. 
And until God speaks to him in this way, in a sharp way, as I, I, I might point out, until God speaks to him in this manner, he doesn't seem to know that he has that authority. And folks, that's exactly where the church world is. We have authority that we don't know. So what does he do? He obeys what God said. It all comes down to obedience. He does the word. He acts on what God said and things supernaturally change. He gets to the other side. Israel goes over on dry ground just like God said. Pharaoh chases after him. Says, well, okay, door's still open. Let's head through there too. And then God says, now Moses, exercise your authority again. Stretch forth your hand across the water once more and the waters will come together and Pharaoh will no longer be a problem to you. Now, folks, we could go through the Old Testament time after time after time showing you where people who had less than what you have, people who are spiritually dead, exercised authority and changed the course of the world. Jacob stopped the sun from going down. Now, folks, I missed that class on how to stop the sun from setting. Maybe you were there, but I didn't get that one. Where did Jacob get that? He needed it so his people could win the battle. So he exercised authority in a supernatural, miraculous way. Well, I don't know whatever word to use. He stopped. You know, my mind starts going tilt on some of this. What happened? Did the earth stop rotating? Well, if so, then gravity wouldn't have worked and then spun off into space. Okay, so the earth didn't stop rotating. So what happened? Did the sun stop moving? I don't have any answers. I mean, if I was a scientist, boy, I'd have a field day with this instead of trying to figure out how an SUV is causing the world to heat up. But that's just me. You see Elijah come on the scene and say, it's not going to rain for three years because I said so. Wow. That's pretty good there, Elijah. You sure? Three years later, it hadn't rained a drop. Finally, Elijah says, okay, it's time to rain again. And it rains buckets. I mean, they have some kind of rain at that point. You see men and women exercising authority over the laws of nature. You see men and women, Elisha caused an axe head to float. I've never seen an axe head float, have you? The laws of nature were superseded. Leprosy was healed. Diseases disappeared. Over and over and over again, you see supernatural event after supernatural event. Why? Because God made a way for man to have authority on the earth once again. He lost the original authority by disobeying Satan. Folks, you lose your authority by the people you listen to, by listening to the wrong people. You give up your authority by listening to the wrong voices. You give up your authority by associating yourself with the wrong people. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. Eve didn't have any business even talking to the deceiver. Says the serpent, the word serpent is the word deceiver. I certainly do not believe that Satan came as a snake. She knows she has authority over snakes and every other thing that creeps on the earth. She had no business talking to him. She should have said, you're not supposed to be here. Get out of the garden. But she associated with him. And her association caused her to listen to it. 
her listening to him caused her to obey what he said. Folks, that is the progression that causes you to lose authority. So once man lost authority, what's God to do? God's original plan never changed. And that was for man to exercise his will and purpose, God's will and purpose, here on the earth. So he had to find a way for man to operate in authority once again. He's dead spiritually. He was alive. Adam and Eve were alive spiritually in the Garden of Eden. But that life has gone out of them. That life departed from them. Now they're separated from God. So God has to do something about that separation. So he institutes the sacrifice. The shedding of blood brings man back into connection or union with him temporarily. But he has to keep renewing the sacrifice year after year after year. But how is he going to operate in authority? There's only one way that God made available for man to operate in authority. And that was through obedience to his word through obedience to his word now folks turn with me over to isaiah chapter 45 because like i said this sounds good in theory and we can all sit around and say yes amen this is what the bible says and that won't that won't cause one bit of delegated power to be exercised in your life Moses and God could have had a great discussion on the side of the Red Sea about how things are supposed to work and it wouldn't have caused them to go over on dry ground. It's the exercise or the use of authority that makes all the difference. Isaiah chapter 45, here's a verse of Scripture and, and, and as I said before, the real conflict, the real controversy, the problem that so much of the church world has about authority is they know them. The concept, the idea that man has authority here on the earth to do things that the Bible tells us about having been done already. I mean, stopping the sun, for example. Parting the Red Sea. Making axe heads float. I mean, honestly, to make an axe head float because somebody had, bar- had borrowed the axe or loaned the axe to somebody and now they were going to have to pay it back, that seems like a pretty minor detail for God to perform a miracle about, doesn't it? Well, it does to me. That'd be one of those things I'd chalk up to, man, I should have been more careful with that thing. Maybe God's more willing to get involved in little things than we know he is or have accepted him to be. Isaiah chapter 45. The 45th chapter of Isaiah is where God tells about a person, a man named Cyrus, that does not know God. God says about three or four times in this verse or in this, uh, in this chapter, he said, yet thou hast not known me. He tells, God tells him how that he's anointed him. He tells him how he's empowered him. He tells him how he's caused him to win victories over his enemies for the sake of Israel, just for the sake of the things that he would do and the good things that he would do on behalf of Israel. He's not even talking about, the first part of the chapter at least, he's not even talking about his people. He's talking about what he's done for an ungodly, pagan, idol-worshipping leader for the sake of the work that would be done for his people. Now in chapter 45 and verse 11, God says something regarding Israel that you'll find is one of the most Uh, mistranslated and explained away verses in all of Scripture. God says, Thus saith the Lord, this is Isaiah 45, verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker. In other words, 
It's talking about Jesus and his father. Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons. And concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. Surely that's mistranslated. Well, that's what most people think. Look it up word for word in the Hebrew. You'll find out it's really accurate. The word command means to enjoin, appoint, or to set in order. In other words, God's saying, it's your call. It's your call. Now, folks, here's the, here's the, the issue, that, and here's something that the Lord has really been dealing with me about. Um, you know how some people avoid conflict? They just hate conflict. They'll do anything to avoid conflict at all costs. Um, I'm not one of those people. Surprise, surprise. Huh? <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I don't enjoy conflict. I don't go looking for it, but it's part of life. And since it is part of life, when it comes up, you deal with it and you move on. Well, my personality type, I've got to really be careful. The Lord really dealt with me some years ago about the difference in being in a fight and being a fighter. There's a huge difference. We were facing some things, some problems with the church, and I asked the Lord about it. And he said, no, here's what I want you to do. And it was to to join the fight. Here's what I want you to do. He said, but don't let it turn you into a fighter. And I had to ask him about that. I, Lord, I don't understand. What do you mean by that? How can I be in a fight and not be in a fighter? And he showed me the difference. He showed me the difference. Now, when it comes to, to the issue of authority, you remember we referred to uh, Luke chapter 10 and verse 20. Jesus has just said, I give you authority over tre- uh, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Then he says, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather that your names are written down in the book of heaven. Right? There is a natural tendency to exercise authority by fighting. There is a natural tendency to see the devil as your enemy and you're out to take him down. I I know that there's something that comes over me very, very often when I'm laying hands on the sick. I get mad at sickness. If I don't use that in the right way, it can become destructive. If this becomes me being mad at sickness, then I can't get help for the person where healing is concerned. And this is something that the Lord has really been dealing with me and drawing to my attention here over the last several weeks in a great, great way. And here's the, here's the, the reality. The exercise of authority is not fighting the devil to make him turn loose. The exercise of authority is simply the enforcement of the victory that's already been gained. You can't ever find where the Bible tells you to fight against the devil. There's only one fight the Bible tells the church, and that is to fight the good fight of faith. Well, what is the fight of faith? Stand and praise God for an answer you can't see. But see, there's a, there's a real fine line here. There's a, it's real easy to see the devil as your enemy and be mad at him and be angry with him and try to fight him with the force of the flesh. Yet remember the Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're not emotional. They're not reasoned or reasonings. They're spiritual weapons. Well, what spiritual weapon do you have? 
The only spiritual weapon you can ever have is that which has already been accomplished through Jesus' sacrifice. So, and, and here's the way he explained it to me. He brought three different examples of uh, things that have happened during our church history. I don't know that I'm going to tell you all of them, but I'll, I'll kind of refer briefly. When the first, the, the church was very, very young. We were probably about, um, oh, I don't know, a year, maybe 14, 15 months old, something like that. Uh, there were three men that came to me. And these three men said, the Lord has sent us here to help you. They said, here's what we want you to do. The ministry he's given us is blah, blah, blah. Take care of this, take care of that, take care of the other. What we want you to do is we want you to take care of the pastoral part. But this, this area that they've given us to teach and to minister and to, to share and so forth, this is what God has brought us here to help and to add to your church. Well, I didn't know these guys very well. They've been with us for a couple of months, I guess. I didn't know these guys very well. And, and they had it. I mean, they, they were a team. You could see. They were just, they were working hand in hand. They were just a team. And I'm listening to this. And I'm thinking, well, what they're saying is okay, I guess. I mean, yeah, I kind of believe what they're talking about too. I'd like a little bit more information, but okay. But something on the inside of me rose up and got really mad. Like I get mad at sickness. Something rose up on the inside of me and got really mad. And I heard myself saying, nope, that's not the way it's going to work. I'm thinking, why did I say that? Because that's not what I'm thinking. But I hear these words come out of my, my mouth. Nope, that's not the way it's going to work. And then they turned around and they said, yeah, but, but, but Pastor Mike, you don't understand. God sent us here. And they tried to explain it again. And the more they explained it, the more I got upset. Now, I'm not upset physically, but something's stirring on the inside. And so I just said, nope, that's not the way it's going to work. And I said, and then I heard myself say these words. I heard myself say, and since I know that you guys are here to take over that which God has planted and you have no part in, it's time for you guys to go. Well, they said some real nice parting words and uh, kind of showed their true colors there and walked out of the room. And I thought to myself, Lord, what was that? Because I wouldn't plan to say any of that. I didn't even know any of that stuff. I was unconsciously led by the Holy Ghost to stop something in its infancy that could have taken our church in the wrong direction. So I said, Lord, what is that? And the Lord said, I just preserved the work that I planted. That's all he said. I've thought about that years and years and years later. What's going on with that? Well, Having thought about that and having gained that experience has helped me through the years in other areas. Had a prophetess come into our church. Prophetess, as Brother Hagin used to say. Prophetess. <laughs> she came to our church and she told me she had a word from the Lord for our church and, and all this kind of stuff. Now, this has just been, well, I don't know, a couple of years ago. And uh, so she said, here was the word that the Lord had for her. She started telling me some things that the Lord had showed her and revealed to her and this, that, and the other. And, um, and I'm listening. I've got this smile pasted on my face. And I'm thinking, not a chance. Not a chance. Nope. But I'm not being rude. I've learned a little bit. So uh, not as much as you think I should have, I know. But I'm, I'm, I've got this smile pasted on my face. I'm listening to everything she says. I'm not even interrupting her, not doing anything. And then she starts telling me, she says, now, there have been other churches that I've been sent to that, uh, that the Lord sent me to that didn't listen. And then she started naming some people's names. One guy had just died about six months before. 
I says, oh, okay, now I got it. If I don't listen to you, then I'm dead, right? How long do I have? <laughs> and so I just said, no, that's not the way things are going to work. Sorry, you wasted your time. Try somewhere else. I know better. And the Lord, there was another situation. I won't take time to talk to you about it. But the different, different things, the different times where the devil has come in and tried to, tried to exercise authority against us. Well, the last one was financial. Might as well tell you. Last one was financial. I've had people. I've had the devil. Tell us at different times, we're going to take over your property. We're going to destroy your church and take everything you have. And I learned in those situations, in those areas, I learned it's not a matter of how loud you get. It's not a matter of how forceful you are. It's simply a matter of knowing who has authority. Now, folks, I believe that's what Jesus is saying in Luke 10, 20. Authority is not fighting the devil for your place. Authority is recognizing, recognizing, no, you're not. You're not going to do that because this is God's thing. What I'm doing is at the will of the Father. You're not going to destroy us. You're not going to take us over. It's very simply mine by the will of God. That's when authority works. When you keep the emotion out of it, when you keep the forcefulness of your flesh out of it, that's when authority works. How many of you ever had the devil tell you that he's going to kill you with some kind of sickness? Pretty common. I mean, you stub your toe, he's going to tell you that his, your foot's going to rot off. I mean, he's, he's crazy. You get a headache, he tell you it's a brain tumor. He'll tell you that about anything. But if you go to the doctor and you get a bad report about something, oh boy, then he really steps up. Well, what does he always tell you? He tells you what he's going to do. Why is he telling you what he's going to do? Because you're the one that decides. He's trying to convince you into what he wants to do. So anytime the devil tells you, here's what I'm going to do, that's the point for you to say, no, you're not. Because authority is the exercise of the victory that's already been gained. It's not trying to fight the devil to get something. It's not even trying to fight the devil to keep something. It's the enforcement of that which has already been provided. I've I got to tell you, I'm seeing this in a different way than I ever have. I'm seeing this in a much different way. It's changed my prayer life. It's totally changed my prayer life. Because now... It's not a matter of, okay, Lord, here's what we need. Here's what we want. Here's what we're trying to push through. Here's what we're trying to gain. Now it's, no, you're not, devil. No, you're not. Charles Finney, who was one of the greatest revivalists of, um, well, of his day, certainly of his day, maybe of any day, told a, about a, a, a man that uh, would go ahead of him. He wasn't on staff. He wasn't paid. wasn't part of his ministry. But the man's name was Father Nash. I'm not sure if he was an Episcopal priest or, or just what his affiliation denomination was or whatever. But he said that the Lord spoke to him to go before the, uh, into the cities that Finney was going to have his revivals and pray. So the only thing he asked of Finney is to know what is your schedule? Where are you going to go next? And he would go two or three weeks ahead of time and pray. Well, after, after doing this for a period of several years, Finney started going with him. 
to pray because he recognized that a lot of the results that he was getting, people getting saved and so forth, uh, were as a result of the prayer that was taking place through Father Nash. So Finney would start to go with him, and they'd go ahead of time. He wouldn't be able to stay the whole time like Father Nash would. But he said that he learned a lot just by, by praying with Father Nash. And he said there would be times where Father Nash would cry out in the spirit. He was uh, spirit-filled, spoke with tongues. And so there'd be times where he'd cry out in the spirit. He'd be speaking with tongues, and then he'd cry out in the spirit and start laughing. And then he'd say, Lord, you don't think we're not going to have revival here, do you? Isaiah forty-five eleven. Thus saith the Lord, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the works of my hands, command you me. So he said, Finney said that he heard Father Nash say some things like this. Lord, you don't think we're not going to have revival in this town, do you? And just laugh. Just laugh. There'd be other times he'd come up against the devil in prayer. Folks, I'm convinced that you come up against the devil more in prayer than you're ever going to see him in your real life. Real life. What does that mean? In other areas of your life. And if you take care of him in prayer, you'll see him even less often in other areas. We're going to do some teaching on exercising authority in prayer. I'm going to show you some things that I'm learning. So he'd see these things with Father Nash and he'd ask him about it. Afterwards, he asked him. He said, I've never heard anybody pray like that. And in one case, first time he heard it, Father Nash said, well, I don't think I've ever prayed like that either. He said, well, what happened? He said, I don't know. He said, I just was petitioning the Lord, you know, concerning the meetings. As much as he knew, I mean, he's speaking in tongues, so he's not sure what he's saying. But he said, as much as I know, I'm just petitioning the Lord in prayer for these uh, meetings that are upcoming. And he said, all of a sudden, it seems like I just hit a wall. He said, I prayed, couldn't get over the wall. Couldn't get around the wall. He said there was just something resisting. And he said, I prayed to the point where I, I, I remember. He said, I heard myself saying, Lord, you don't think we're not going to have revival here, do you? In other words, it was almost like in prayer, he wasn't getting the Lord help to help him get through the wall. So what does he do? He exercises authority. He says, Lord, you don't think we're not going to have revival here, do you? What he's saying literally is, Satan, you don't think you're big enough to stop revival in this town, do you? But he directed it at the Lord since his prayer is to the Lord, not against the devil. I think a lot of times people are trying to pray against the devil. Folks, prayer is communication with God, not the devil. If you're talking to the devil in your prayer, you've got your, your, your wires crossed. Prayer is talking to God. Well, they wound up having one of the biggest revivals that they ever had in, the, in history. Not just in his ministry, in history in that town. Then he said, I learned to listen for Father Nash praying like that. He said, I learned to, to, to put it together. He said, if I heard him pray something like that, some unusual way like that, he said, I knew we were in for something big. I knew we were in for something big. Folks, where the Bible says, where God tells us that he sets before us life and death, blessing and cursing, and then says, choose life. Life has already been provided. Every blessing. You are blessed. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. Is that what it is? 2, 3, something like that. It says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That means everything you'll ever need for victory. Everything you'll ever need to accomplish 
God's will here in the earth has already been provided for you. All you have to do is enforce it. If you notice what Jesus said to his disciples, he said to the church, he says, occupy till I come. He didn't say fight. He didn't say do battle. He didn't say you're in a war. The only thing the Bible tells us about any of that is we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's a wrestle, but it's not the war that everybody tries to make it out to be. So what does he tell us to do? He says, put on the armor of God so that you can pray effectively. Put on the armor of God so that through prayer you can enforce the victory that's already been gained. Your healing has already been obtained. Your material well-being has already been gained through the work of Jesus. All you have to do is enforce it. All you have to do is enforce that victory. And that's the exercise of authority. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you what you've given us in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Oh, Father, without the shed blood of Jesus, without his sacrifice on the cross, we would have nothing. We would be nothing. We don't count ourselves to be anything in and of ourselves even now. But, oh, Father, we are children of the King. We are children of the Most High God, the Creator of heaven and earth, the Deliverer from all of our enemies. That victory has already been obtained. Our job is simply to enforce it in the name of Jesus, in obedience to your word and in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. How many of you are facing a physical situation with sickness where the devil is trying to take that deliverance that's already been obtained? Raise your hand, please. Okay, all over the room. You can put your hand down. How many of you are facing financial situations where the devil is trying to take that victory that's been obtained by Jesus where it says the chastisement of your peace was upon him? Why don't you raise your hands, please? All over the room. All right. Then let's do this together as a church family. Let's all stand together. Abraham, who was one of the, who was, well, in my estimation, the first to really gain any insight about what it meant to follow and obey God, had received the promises and they had delayed at least some of them had the ones that were most important to him had delayed that's a tough thing proverbs says proverbs says that hope deferred makes the heart sick but when the desire comes it's a tree of life So Abraham asked the Lord. God says one more time. See the stars of the sky. That's going to be like your children. Abraham says. Lord how can I know. I've got your word. It's great to have the word. But I felt the same way as Abraham did. Haven't you? But Lord how do I know. How do I know. You know what God gave him. God gave him one more promise. Because it's always the word. It's never a natural thing. It's never a circumstance to look at. He gave him one more promise. He said, fear not, Abraham. 
I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Now, if you look at those, look those words up, he's telling them a lot more than what might be just apparent to the natural eye. Exceeding great reward means vehemently increasing payment. He says, I'm your shield and I'm your reward. The Bible says God requires of his people that we believe that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, folks, I know that religion and the church world has a hard time with this reward business from God. But God's into it very much. Very much. He requires you to believe that he'll reward you. It's not an option. Hebrews 11, 6 says, God requires you to believe two things. He that cometh to God must believe, number one, that he is. In other words, that he is who he claims he is in his word. And number two, that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Well, if you meet that criteria, then you're in position for a great reward. God's been talking to me about the shield part. Part of his promise regarding sickness was that none of the diseases would take hold upon you that have taken hold upon the world for... Exodus fifteen twenty six, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. How do diseases not take hold of us? They're in the world. How do they not take hold of us? Because God's our shield. But he's only our shield when we exercise our authority. When we enforce that which has already been done. That's when he's our shield. That's when it works for us. What about financial things? He's our exceeding great reward. It's been accomplished just as much as healing, just as much as forgiveness of sins. Jesus shed blood for the chastisement of your peace. That word peace is the word shalom. It means prosperity. It means well-being in every area. But it only comes when we enforce the victory that's already been gained through the exercise of our authority. So I want you to close your eyes and raise one hand toward heaven and say these words after me. And I want you to say them, not with anger, not with emotional force, but just with a settled determination and a settled recognition in your heart that you belong to God. And you've been given the name of Jesus, which is above every name. It's above the name of sickness. It's above the name of poverty or lack. Say this after me. In the name of Jesus, I declare... That I walk in health. I enforce. The victory of healing. In my body. In the name of Jesus. I declare. In the name of Jesus. That all. Of my needs. Are met. I enforce. The victory. Of provision. That was won for me. On the cross of Jesus. I declare. Satan. You shall not have. That which Jesus has purchased. That which has been made mine. In Jesus name. So be it. Amen. Folks there's a difference between emotion and spiritual force. 
When the devil comes and he tries to say, yeah, but it's not going to work because that's when you exercise a spiritual force and say, no, don't. No, you won't. No, you can't. Healing is mine. Provision is mine. You can't have it. When you have authority, you don't have to act like you, that it's yours. You don't have to pretend. When it's yours, you just use it. I'm the boss at the office. I don't have to act like the boss. Because I am. You have authority over every work of the devil. All you have to do is enforce it because it's been won for you. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Oh, Father, we thank you. We bless your holy name. We worship you. We thank you for the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. Forgive us, Father, where we've acted immaturely and acted out of our emotions. We didn't know, Father. We didn't know. But now we're learning. We're learning more and more. We're learning. In Jesus' precious name, we'll not let the devil take away the deliverance that's already been obtained. But just like Moses, we shall exercise our authority and go forward, no matter what it looks like we're going into. We believe, Father, just as you delivered Moses and the children of Israel, if you've got to part the sea for us, so be it. But we will go through. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us for Healing School tonight if you can. Amen.